that. Look at your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. We're going to begin a new course of study here. We had spent quite a bit of time in the Gospel of John, and we took a break on a couple of topical studies, and then looked at the Psalms for a few months. And now we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, and what I'm going to title, Setting the Stage. And what we look at today is a part of the first nine verses. The first nine verses are really an introduction to the entirety of the letter, and they really set the stage for the people to hear what it is God is going to say to them through the Apostle Paul. Now, most of us know a little bit about the church at Corinth. It was a very mixed-up church. It had a lot of problems. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is going to speak to those issues and to those needs that were so prevalent at this church in the first century. So most people find a significant level of satisfaction with their church. After all, that's the reason they attend it. That's why they support it. That's why they give to it. And that's why they keep coming back week after week after week. But what we need to recognize is that no church is perfect because it contains sinful, selfish, imperfect people. Oftentimes, our sin, our imperfections, are unaware to us in such a way that we don't necessarily see the way that it is negatively impacting the church that we are a part of. Our sin will affect the the success of the ministries that the church will undertake. Our sin might affect the satisfaction that others find in it through its deficiencies and through the problems that are more obvious to others than may be obvious to ourselves. Well, the church at Corinth was filled with issues, and in this letter to the church, Paul is going to begin the process of addressing them. Now, there are two letters to the church at Corinth and in our Bible, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but based upon what it says in 1 Corinthians, there was an earlier letter that Paul wrote to the church that has not survived the days of history. We don't have a record of it. We don't know what was said in it. All we know is that there is a vague reference in 1 Corinthians 5.9 of an earlier letter that Paul sent to the church at Corinth. So in the church at Corinth, there was strife over rival teaching groups. There was sexual immorality, including incest. There were lawsuits within the community of believers. There was unruly worship. There was abuse with the communion meal that was observed. There were battles over the superiority of spiritual gifts. There was the denial of a physical bodily resurrection. And so Paul is going to deal with all of these issues throughout this 16 chapters that we're going to look at. And in these first nine verses, Paul is going to establish four central themes that will be the framework for what we are going to read and study over the next several months in the 16 chapters of this letter. So we're going to read in the entirety this introductory section, verses 1 through 9, and our focus this morning is only going to be on verses 1 through 3. So here's what the Apostle Paul writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Corinth. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you were not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm to you confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So woven into these nine verses are the four themes that we are going to look at that will be dealt with and repeated over and over and over in our study of 1 Corinthians. So in these first three verses in our study today, which depict a very typical ancient culture salutation, where it recognizes the author and the recipient and contains a greeting, in these three verses, we're going to find two of the central themes that Paul will use as a framework and as an introduction into what it is he's going to say through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the first of our four themes is going to be this. It is going to be Paul's apostleship. It is Paul's authority as an apostle. We read in verse 1a, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So we might ask ourselves the question, why is it necessary for Paul to establish his apostolic authority in the very beginning of the letter? Well, he wants to recognize or wants to identify to this church who it is that is writing him. And so there's also a secondary issue that Paul wants to to deal with here. So it's like this. If someone is going to get involved in confronting the issues within a church, it would be reasonable for someone to ask the question, well, who are you? What gives you the right? Upon what authority do you have to tell us how to live our lives or how to conduct the affairs of our church? So from the outset, Paul identifies his authority as an apostle by the will of God. Now, what's also important for us to understand here, that Paul is not unknown to the church at Corinth. He isn't a stranger. He isn't someone that they haven't met and do not know. In fact, we learn from Acts chapter 18 that Paul traveled there, I think on his third missionary journey, and was instrumental in establishing the body of believers that existed in the city of Corinth. We read these excerpts from Acts chapter 18, verses 1, 4, 8, and 11, where it says, After these things he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. Verse 4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, entire trying to persuade Jews and Greek Greeks. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And in verse 11, And he, Paul, settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So they knew Paul. They've heard him teach. He was instrumental in leading them to the Lord. And with the help of other believers, Paul helped to establish the church that existed in the city of Corinth. By reminding them of his spiritual position, he is reminding them of his authority to speak to them on the matters that relate to the affairs in the church. If our church was experiencing 
major problems, if there was disarray, if there was friction and factions, and if it seemed like the church was about to explode at any moment because of how tense things were, and then Pastor Greg, our founding pastor, showed up, or Pastor Greg wrote a letter to address the issues that were within the church, most people in this church would say, okay, we need to listen because Pastor Greg wants to speak to us about the issues that we have in our church. In a similar way, Paul, because he is known to them, and Paul, because he is an apostle by the will of God, is going to speak upon the authority that God has given to him, and he's going to speak truth into the problems that the church was facing. The reality is, is that many in the church didn't know that there were any problems at all. They were just being themselves, doing what came naturally to them, and Paul is going to deal with that issue also. Think about it like this. It's very difficult for us to envision what the first century church might have looked like. Not only are the cultures and the customs very, very different, but most of the people who made up this church in Corinth didn't grow up hearing the truth of the Word of God. They worshipped false gods. They worshipped idols. They were a part of paganism. They had no idea who Jesus was or what Jehovah was about because they just didn't know in their upbringing. They were a group of heathens that have been saved by grace and they're just doing what comes natural to them. And Paul is going to speak truth into these issues by authority that God has given to him. Paul is an apostle By the will of God. This is what Paul states so clearly. And this is not a way of Paul flaunting his position or trying to draw attention to himself. He is simply stating that he is an apostle by God's choosing, not by his own design, and not established by the church in Jerusalem. God called him and chose him For this role. In fact, Paul's perspective of himself, as we will read much, much later in 1 Corinthians, as recorded in chapter 15, verse 9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul deemed himself to be on the lowest echelon of the totem pole of apostleship because of what he was guilty of before he was saved. We know the story. Paul was a Jew trained under one of the most noteworthy rabbis of the day, Gamaliel. Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, and that included killing them and dragging them off to prison. And Jesus shows up and reveals himself to Paul and says... I am choosing you, and I am going to show you how much you are going to have to suffer on behalf of me. And Paul's life was never, ever the same. Over the next couple of years, Jesus would reveal himself to Paul and give to him incredible visions, imparting to him eternal truth that was not yet known or taught by the other disciples. So Paul had incredible authority as an apostle, One chosen by the will of God. So whatever Paul is going to say, he's going to say upon the authority given to him by God. And what he says is delegated to him by God. And what Paul is saying is this. This is his message. 
It is not my message, and you need to listen to what God says through me as an apostle that he has chosen. Apostles were given a very unique role. And not getting to all the nuances and details of apostleship, apostles spoke the words inspired by God, and they completed the teaching ministry of Jesus that he introduced, but did not actually complete in its fullness. And so what the apostles did is the apostles expanded upon the teaching that Jesus began, filling in all of the gaps. And this is exactly what Jesus prepared his disciples for as he was getting ready to depart from them. He would say in John 16, 13, but when he, the Holy, excuse me, when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. So just as Jesus spoke what he heard from the Father, the Holy Spirit is going to speak just as he hears from the Father. He's going to speak to the apostles and they are going to repeat what it is they have heard from the Father. So this is evidence that Jesus was going to give his disciples authority to speak on his behalf through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Paul is about to do for the church at Corinth. Because Jesus didn't teach them absolutely everything that they would teach in the context of their earthly ministries. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 7.12, But to the rest I say, not the Lord. And what this means is very simply this. Jesus didn't teach the, the minutia of detail about everything that we find in the New Testament. The apostles would be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And where Paul could not find a specific reference to something Jesus has said, he would then say, this is me speaking, not the Lord Jesus himself. But we understand, based upon the fulfillment of the New Testament teaching, when Paul speaks, or when Peter speaks, or when James or John speak, it is God speaking through them. This is why we read in 2 Corinthians 3.16 that all in Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Peter would say in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Did the apostles understand that they spoke by virtue of the authority of what God was speaking to them through the Holy Spirit? I believe they absolutely did. Because after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and after the Holy Spirit imparted them all them, the details that Jesus did not explain to them, when they had a full and complete understanding, what they were speaking in these verses that we've looked at is their rationale for the authority that they have to speak the words that they have spoken based upon what God has told them to say. So the apostles spoke the word of God as inspired by God, and this is one of the reasons why pastors and preachers and teachers today should not be called apostles because we don't speak 
by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we teach upon what has already been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that word apostle is used to a limited group of people who were eyewitnesses of Christ, who had seen Christ, and who speak by the inspiration of Christ. Pastors and teachers and preachers and church leaders today do not stand upon the same pedestal of apostleship as the original 12 minus Judas plus Paul speaks. I am not an apostle. I am simply a pastor called by God to teach the truth of his word. I don't have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I simply teach what God has inspired through those that he had gifted for that purpose. So in this message given to the church of Corinth, Paul stands on his authority as an apostle called by God And his message doesn't come from him alone. It comes with his brother Sosthenes. And this is what we read. And Sosthenes, our brother. Well, who is this individual that Paul is referencing? Well, we are introduced to Sosthenes in Acts chapter 18. It's the same chapter where Paul's missionary trip to the city of Corinth is recorded. And what we find in this chapter 18 of the book of Acts is that after Crispus became a believer, and Crispus was the original leader of the synagogue, we find out that Sosthenes is the individual who replaced Crispus after Crispus became a believer in Jesus Christ. And so what we read in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 and 12 through 17, is this, Paul was drugged before the civil court in Corinth, and Sosthenes is the leader of the synagogue who oversaw that trial. We read this in Acts 18.17. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. What isn't clear is if the Jews beat Sosthenes, or if the Greeks beat Sosthenes, that Galileo was the one who ruled over the civil court, and he didn't care what happened to Sosthenes. But what we see here is a transfer of leadership in the synagogue from Crispus to Sosthenes. So since Paul preached regularly in and around the synagogues, it is very likely that this Sosthenes was also converted under the teaching ministry of Paul, and Paul now calls him our brother. Now, this is important for this reason. Sosthenes, having been a religious leader in Corinth, would know something about the church at Corinth, especially if he was converted and was a part of the home gatherings that were taking place in the city of Corinth. So he would have a first-hand knowledge of what was going on there, and could speak factually to Paul about the issues that were plaguing the life of the church in Corinth that precipitated Paul writing this second letter called 1 Corinthians to them. So the first theme that Paul sets forth in these first two verses is his authority as an apostle called by God to intervene in the life of the church and to begin the process of addressing and correcting that which was wrong. Now, the second theme that we're introduced here in these verses is this. Is this is God's church. Look what it says here in the very first part of verse 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth. 
Paul is not writing to the church of Corinth or to individual members of the church in Corinth. He's not writing to the leaders at the church in Corinth. He is writing to God's church. This is a clear and subtle reminder that the church doesn't belong to the people. The church doesn't belong to the pastor. The church belongs to God. The people who make up the church do not belong to a leader. The people who make up a church aren't going to belong to individual groups within the church. They don't even belong to themselves. But we, the church, belong to God. This is something that Paul is going to emphasize later. And we look at this in 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you have been bought with a price... Therefore, glorify God in your body. Our redemption is not our own. Our salvation is not our own. Our life is not our own. Our life belongs to the one who bought us back through the blood of Christ, the one who has redeemed us, and that is God himself. So as God's church, Paul is reminding these believers that they are a divine creation not a human organization. We would do well to remember that, that we are a part of a divine creation, not a human organization. This church, as we looked at in the 20th anniversary celebration last week, was not just a good idea that existed within the hearts of a group of people. It was a group of people who believed that God had called them to plant a church, and they identified this as a divine creation and not a human organization. He, Christ, is the head of the church, and we are the body of the church. We are the bride of Christ, and we are subject to his authority. Not a human organization, excuse me, not a human organization, but a divine creation with a spiritual life that is directly related to what God instilled in us through the gift of our salvation. The church is a divinely called people who belong to God through their faith and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Does this affect how we are to think of the church? Does this affect how we do church? Does this affect how we support our church? Does this affect what we think our church might say to others? About our church? Well, the resounding answer is yes, it should affect everything that we think and say and do about this church because we are divine creation, not a human organization. Paul states two truths about the church of God, whether it be the one in Corinth, whether it be the one that we attend here this morning, or whether it be a church in some remote village in the continent of Africa. The first truth that Paul states about the church is this. It has been sanctified. Now notice what Paul says here in the second part of verse 2. To those that have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. What does that mean? It means that the sanctification that Paul is going to begin here as a part of the theme of God's church is going to be expanded upon throughout the remaining chapters of this letter. And this sanctification is in the past tense. 
We have been sanctified. Well, when did that take place? At the instant that you and I were saved, we were sanctified. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is preparing the church to understand something that they don't understand, perhaps something that they have forgotten, and that is very simply this. Our position in Christ, having been sanctified, and our daily practice should align. What God says is true about us, that we have been sanctified in Christ, should be consistent with the sanctification that we exhibit in the lives that we live. All believers in Jesus Christ have been sanctified. This is our position in Christ. To, to be sanctified very simply means to make holy. Think about this. When you were a rugged, unspiritual, untrained, worthless sinner, at the instant you were saved, Christ sanctified you. You could be a hell's angel who rode a motorcycle and was addicted to drugs and was guilty of all manner of crime. And at the instant you had been saved by virtue of your salvation, Christ has sanctified you. Christ makes us holy at the moment we are saved. Called as saints. That word saints, holy ones. It means holy ones. Those that have been separated from. Separated from the world. Separated from our old way of life. Separated from our dead spiritual nature. And in an instant, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy. We have been changed. We have been filled by the Holy Spirit. We have been adopted by God Himself. We have been promised an eternity with God for all of eternity. All of this takes place at the very instant we are saved. Through our faith in Christ, we have already been sanctified. We have already been made holy. This position is who we are in Jesus Christ. What we read in Hebrews 10.10 is this. By this will, the will of God in our salvation, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Past tense have been sanctified. Hebrews 10.14 By this offering, He has perfected for all times, for all times, those who are sanctified. Again, speaking of what Jesus has done for us at the instant of our salvation. We'll read this later on and study it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. At the very moment you and I were saved, God washed us in the blood, He made us holy, He sanctified us 
making us righteous just like the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. In our new spiritual position, we have already been made holy. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, God has given to us the very righteousness of Christ. And so what Paul is doing is he is reminding these incredibly sinful people of who they really are, the holy ones, the called out ones, people that have been made holy in and through Christ. This new spiritual position is not enough. It must become our practice. We must become in this life who we have been made to be in Christ. You know, sometimes if you are to greet someone who professes to be a Christian and is struggling with their sin, and you say, hello there, my fellow saints in Jesus Christ, they might say, well, I don't feel very saintly. I know the sin that I have struggled with with this week. I know the things that I have done that I would never dare repeat to another, another individual. Someone might call you a saint and you say, well, I don't know how much of a saint I really am because I know how sinful I am. I know how far apart I am from God's holy and righteous standard. But being called a saint is a reminder of our spiritual position in Christ. And this is the gist. Who we are in Christ has to align with who we are living our lives out to be like in this world. This process of becoming like who we are is called progressive sanctification. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, we have a responsibility in living up to our new spiritual position. We have to cleanse ourselves. How? By making right decisions. By repenting of our sin. By asking for and granting forgiveness. By praying that God would fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we could live our lives unfettered from the power and the presence of sin that is around us. First Peter 1, 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And this is God's righteous, righteous standard. We read in Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Our spiritual position and our daily practice and life should align. Now, will it do so perfectly? No, not ever. But it should, in increasing measure, look more like the righteousness that has been given to us at the moment of our salvation. Presidents do not always act presidentially. Diplomats do not always act diplomatically. Kings don't always act kingly. But they are still presidents and diplomats and kings. And the reality is this. Christians don't always act very Christian, but we are still Christian nonetheless. 
the daily struggle that we have, the daily goal that we have, is to be more like who God has called us to be than we were yesterday, than we were last month, than we were last year. Now, after these first nine verses are over, Paul will begin to deal with the immoral behavior and the incorrect doctrine, and he will do so based upon his authority as an apostle and upon their position in Christ. But not only has the church been sanctified, but the church also has a universal identity. The end of verse 2 there. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You know, it's very easy to think that our lives exist in a tiny little bubble and we have little to no impact outside of our own little little bubble, at least our own understanding. But you and I, this church, belongs to God's universal family and we are related to believers everywhere. We, we are the body of Christ. He is the head. That speaks not only of the local body, but of God's universal church. What we do reflects not only upon God, but upon believers everywhere, because we all belong to the same body, and we all call on the same name, Jesus Our Lord. To call upon the name of Jesus is to do more than just call on Him for help in our time of need. It is calling upon His name for our salvation, and it's what grants to us our inheritance and our spiritual adoption as the sons and daughters of the Most High God. We read in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that man has been given, that, excuse me, that has been given among men which, by which we must be saved. So, we belong to a universal church that has been sanctified. Paul is calling upon them to consider who they are, who they belong to, and this should be enough of a rebuke to help them straighten their ways, but it isn't. The real rebuke is going to come very quickly. You and I are a part of God's divine creation in the universal church, and what we do has an impact on the church's reputation in all the world. And that is why you could visit some far-off culture and you could say, yes, I'm a part of such and such a church. And some people would say, oh, we've heard about you. We've heard about Baptists. We've heard about Presbyterians. We've heard about non-denominationalists. Or we've heard about charismatic people. You see, our reputation as believers in Christ goes way beyond our own understanding. It filters into the remotest recesses of the world that you and I may never ever personally visit or know about. But we have to understand the universal church means something in what God has divinely created. That's one of the reasons why our sanctification has to match our position Because when the church fails, it tarnishes the reputation of Christ. 
So this salutation that we've looked at in verses 1 and 2 closes with a familiar and simple greeting that is filled with very rich spiritual truth. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the favor of God given to his church. Peace is the byproduct of that grace. It is peace with God through our salvation. It is the peace that passes understandings in understanding in the midst of in the in the midst of the great storms of life. It is a peace that the world cannot know, but believers possess peace as a state of being that dictates how believers should relate not only to their circumstances, but how believers are to relate to one another. Grace and peace are unique to the believer's spiritual experience, and the world we live in knows absolutely nothing about it. That is why as we grow in our walk with God, that is why when we exhibit peace in our lives, even though we're going through the ringer, it speaks of the authenticity of this divinely created group of believers who are a part of God's universal church, how that makes a difference in our lives and in the lives of those who are looking and watching and learning something about the profession of faith that you and I make. So we're halfway through the four themes. We'll look at the remaining two as we focus on verses 4 through 9 next time. So as you think about this, Paul is speaking to the church based upon his authority as an apostle by the will of God to the church of God that has been sanctified, this universal church. Everything that Paul is going to say, he says not only to the church in Corinth, but he says to the church universal for all eternity, and that includes you and I today. I believe that if we listen closely... And if we let our guards down, undoubtedly we will hear God speak to us and challenge our behavior, challenge our attitudes, challenge our perspectives about what it is that takes place in this little local body of believers that is a part of God's divine creation. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we give you thanks that you have not left us to our own devices, that you have chosen to speak to us through your perfect, eternal word. We thank you for the men that you have called, who have given us this truth, who have expanded and completed the teaching that was begun in the earthly ministry of Jesus, which was the completion of what was prophesied throughout our Old Testament. Father, would you give to us a hunger and a thirst to know this truth? I pray, Father, that with increasing measure we would be set free from the constraints of this world, from the presence of sin around us, to live the sanctified life that is consistent with who it is you've called us to be as your children of God. God, I pray that as we begin our study that we would be prepared to hear you speak to us, to challenge us in every way possible so that we, with increasing accuracy, can reflect the righteousness of Christ. Father, we pray that you be pleased with our hearts, with our attitudes, and with the actions that come forth as a result of our time together today and in the weeks ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Would you sing with me, please?